Good morning. The first reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The second reading is taken from the book of Judges, chapter 11, verses 30 to 40. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return victorious from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, to be offered up by me as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over into the Ammonites, or crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He inflicted a massive defeat on them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Minnet, 20 towns, and as far as Abel Karamim. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and with dancing. She was his only child. He had no son or daughter except her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, if you have opened your mouth to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has given you vengeance against your enemies, the Ammonites. And she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Grant me two months so that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my companions and I. Go, he said, and sent her away for two months. So she departed, she and her companions, and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to the vow he had made. She had never slept with a man, so there arose an Israelite custom that for four days every year, the daughters of Israel would go out to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. A group of us from Bloomsbury, as you know, have just returned from a couple of weeks visiting Israel-Palestine. And I can honestly say that from my perspective, it was one of the most moving and thought-provoking things I have done for a very long time. This is the image that we had printed off to give uh, to Jean. The thing is, I thought I understood the situation out there with the tensions over the land between Palestine and Israel. I mean, it is not as if we've not covered this stuff at Bloomsbury before. Nickwith, one of our deacons, went over there a year or two back to do voluntary work with the children in the Aida refugee camp in Bethlehem. And she told us all about it when she came back. 
And then we had an evening here at Bloomsbury with the Welsh singer Martin Joseph, the comedian Grace Petrie, and the Al Road Palestinian Youth Drama Group, which finished with everyone on stage singing We Shall Overcome Whilst Holding the Palestinian Flag. And Amos Trust, who focus specifically on promoting peace and reconciliation and justice between Palestinians and Israel, were our charity of the year about two or three years ago. Jean and others from the church have served as ecumenical accompaniers to protect people at risk by offering a non-violent presence, accompanying things like the olive harvest or people going through checkpoints. And if we go back a bit further before my time here, we used to host a Palestinian carol service. And I think I know the political history reasonably well. You know, I know what the Balfour Declaration is, and the Israeli War of Independence, and the Six Day War. I thought I knew this stuff. And then I went there, and I saw it with my own eyes, and suddenly I realized how little I actually knew. And do you know what affected me most, to the extent that I frequently and unexpectedly found myself with tears in my eyes, and those of you who know me well will know that that is uh, infrequent and unexpected. Um, it was the unswerving commitment of the people we met to a path of non-violent resistance and peacemaking in the face of unjustified and unprovoked violence and oppression against them. So I'm thinking of the head of the family at the little farm now known as the Tent of Nations, who has been told he must surrender his family farm, but who has a piece of paper dating from Ottoman times, proving that it's been in his family for centuries. He won't move, he won't leave, but he has painted this sign at the entrance gate, which just says, we refuse to be enemies. I'm thinking of his daughter, who told us about their protracted legal struggles to keep their own land, and how 1,400 of their olive trees were uprooted one night by bulldozers, and how they have just been replanting the trees, one by one. One of those trees now has our name attached to it. I'm thinking of the man who showed us around the West Bank, a Palestinian Christian, who told us of the time when one day he was going through a checkpoint in the wall and was told to get out of his car and was then hit in the face with the butt of a gun and who thought he was going to die. And he says he will never hit back, but he will never give up. I'm thinking of the beautiful valley with the ancient vineyards and a monastery that makes very fine wine. We went for a wine tasting and I drank, uh, with some help, uh, several bottles of it. <laughs> This whole valley with the monastery and the vineyards and the, vi and the winery will one day soon find itself on the wrong side of the wall, which means the people who currently farm the land and tend the grapes cannot get there any longer to make the harvest. And I'm thinking of their commitment to continuing to trade to bring much-needed money to impoverished communities. I'm thinking of the residents of the refugee camp whose grandparents were forcibly evicted from their homes in 1948 
and who went to live in United Nations tents just outside Bethlehem, which in turn became concrete bunkers like this one, which have now become a shantytown with no infrastructure, which is now the Aida, still the Aida refugee camp where Nickwith went and volunteered a couple of years ago, and how they have a hope that one day they will return to their historic land and build new homes for their families. And I'm thinking of the children of that camp who play in the play park provided by the Palestinian Christians in the shadow of the partition wall. Just at the bottom of the left-hand picture, you can see those children's, a little children's play park. This is in the grounds of the Wiam Center, uh, which we were spending time at. And uh, sometimes those children are shelled by tear, tear gas grenades and by skunk water from soldiers in the watchtower on the wall. And these are stun grenades, tear gas grenades, and the like, which have been picked up from within the grounds of this centre for peace and reconciliation. I'm thinking of walking through Hebron and discovering that there were streets where some people were not allowed to walk anymore because they are of the wrong ethnicity. They had to go, uh, our, our Palestinian guide had to go by a different route whilst we walked up this street. And these are, are shop fronts. People whose houses and shops front onto this street are no longer allowed to trade, they're no longer allowed to open, they're no longer allowed to exit onto the street. They have to access their houses from the rear, and if they're in upper tenements, they access them by ladders, going in and out of bedroom windows. And most of all, I'm thinking of the Jewish man who sat and told us how his daughter was killed when a Palestinian terrorist blew himself up in a market, and how he decided that rather than revenge or retaliation, what he wanted was understanding, and how he now works with other bereaved parents on both sides of the conflict, going into schools, to bring a voice calling for peace, um, what you're seeing here, uh, the, the hand on the left is my hand, and I'm holding a rubber bullet and the top of a tear gas grenade. And on the right, um, that was a bullet, that's, a, that's a, one of the other's hands, but that was a bullet that was picked up from the street. It's a dum-dum, which uh, explode when they hit the body and do massive damage, and they're banned by international treaties for use in international conflicts, but you can use them against your own civilians, and we just picked that up off the street in Hebron. And this man who has lost his daughter to a terrorist works with others to bring a voice calling for peace, showing the futility of perpetuating these spirals and cycles of violence down the generation. And here's the thing. It's a hard message to hear when the injustice is so real, so imminent, and so capricious. When you meet people, who have experienced such pain and loss and oppression, the power of their words of forgiveness and peace becomes kind of raw in its intensity. But as the Jewish father of the dead daughter said to us, what is the alternative? And I think here we find ourselves at the question posed for us this morning by our disturbing passage from the book of Judges as we continue our anti-lectionary series looking at passages from the Bible you don't normally hear preached on in church. 
Jephthah is on a mission to right some wrongs and reclaim some land. Does that sound familiar to you? He's a Jewish warrior from the area of Gilead. So I, I put up a little map. So the one on the left is, uh, it shows the, uh, the, the internationally agreed line and then where the wall is going and the two don't match. And on the right, we've got a map showing the same territory roughly in the time of the Book of Judges. So you can see Gilead is Transjordan. It's on the right-hand side of the Jordan. So he's a Jewish warrior from Gilead. Uh, and uh, he comes to prominence at a time when the ancient enemies of Israel, the Ammonites, have been on an 18-year campaign to oppress the Israelites and take their land. The Israelites come to the conclusion that the reason they keep losing to the Ammonites was because they had been worshipping foreign gods. And, you know, impurity of religion had crept into their practice of their Jewish faith. So they embarked on a purity crusade to rid their religion, purge their religion of any idols. So that's the kind of the broad context. The Jews are trying to get more Jewish in the hope that God will give them victory and restore them to their land and uh, overthrow the Ammonites who are incursion, operating incursions into lands the Jews believe should be theirs. Jephthah is an interesting character. Uh, he's a, a disowned and violently angry son of a Jewish father and a prostitute mother. Uh, the reason he's been disowned is because his father had other sons by uh, his wife, so the prostitute's born son is not allowed to inherit. So as is often the case with children from complex backgrounds, uh, he gets quite violent. He's invited, because of his tendency towards fightiness, to become the commander of the Jewish army. And they, they get him in to try and take back the land from the Ammonites. And he enters into a dialogue with the king of the Ammonites uh, as a kind of an initial act of diplomacy. And he asks the king of the Ammonites why they have been attacking Israel. And the Ammonite king replies, because Israel, on coming from Egypt, took away my land, from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peacefully, says the king of the Ammonites to the Jewish delegation. Jephthah argues back, presenting his alternative narrative about what happened and, ha and whose land is whose. And he says, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom wouldn't listen. They also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness, went round the land of Edom to the land of Moab, and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of the Moab. And it goes on and on and on for about a chapter. Jephthah and the Ammonite king, arguing the toss about whose land is whose, who got there first, who started the fight, and who's going to get to live there now. The similarities between this ancient dialogue and the attempts of diplomacy between Israel and the Palestinian Authority in the present day are striking and disturbing. People are still arguing over exactly this same bit of land. So eventually, Jephthah decides that it's time to act 
Uh, the time for talking has expired and diplomacy has failed, so it's time to uh, bring, in, bring in the big guns. And he makes his fateful vow that whatever comes out of his door when he returns in triumph from defeating the Ammonites, whatever comes out of the door will be offered to God as a burnt offering. Now, it's quite likely that Jephthah uh, may have had one of his animals in mind here. I'm not totally convinced about the new RSV translation where it says whoever comes out of the door. The Hebrew is a, a bit more ambiguous than that. It might be like kind of whatever comes across the threshold. And in those days, houses were places where livestock lived on the ground floor, rooms of the house, and, you know, it may, he may have had in mind, I'll give you an animal, God. But nonetheless, the vow is rash and over the top. And I don't know if you've ever done stupid deals like this with God. Uh, if I cast my mind back to my childhood, I, I can remember playing these games with promises. You know the kind of thing. If, if, if this happens, then I'll do that. If you don't do this, God, then I'm going to do the other. And so on. It's childish, it's petty, it's stupid, it's actually condemned elsewhere in Scripture as sorcery, the attempts to manipulate God by, by promising to do things. But here you go, that's Jephthah for you. And of course, the difference between him and me is that I did this kind of thing when I was a child, and he's a grown man, and lives are at stake. And so he ends up killing his own daughter. There is a great irony here, because the Ammonites, who he was fighting, worshipped Molech, the violent deity that required the sacrifice of children. And Jephthah ends up sacrificing his own child to defeat them. It's one of those horrific, terrible, tragic stories of the Old Testament, which it can be quite hard to know what to do with. There are a number of ways you can read this story. And there is a strong case for focusing on the response of Jephthah's daughter, who, like most of the women in the Old Testament, doesn't get a name of her own. The feminist scholar, Cheryl Exum, who taught Liz and I uh, Old Testament studies many years ago, has written on this passage. And she says we need to pay attention to the way the daughter is presented in the story by the writer. The daughter is first blamed by her father. Did you spot that? It's as if it's all her blooming fault. Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. How could you do it, stupid girl, says Jephthah when he realizes that he's made this promise and what that's taking him to. She then seems to internalize that blame, not protesting the fate that her father has rashly decreed for her, but simply asking for time to go and mourn before presenting herself for an early death. Cheryl Exum, I think quite rightly, points out that this canonized example of obedient female submission in the face of an utterly unjust male power ultimately serves a broader patriarchal agenda and needs to be resisted if dominant and controlling religious attitudes towards women are ever to be countered. I think she's right. This story can too easily become a justification for oppression. But I think the story of Jephthah also manages in its own way to deconstruct its own horror. And ultimately, I find myself reading it as a parable of nonviolence. Let me explain. I've said a couple of times already in this series 
that the Old Testament can be read as a series of thought experiments about the nature of God. If God is like this, then where does that take us? If God is like that, then what does the world look like? And so on. And here we have a story that explores what a God who does deals looks like. So the story presents us with Jephthah, the great deal broker, who will do a deal with God or probably also the devil if he's going to get to make his country great again. And, of course, he gets what he asks for, even though he also gets more than he bargained for. He wins his battles, he gets the territory back, but he loses his only child and has no one to leave his conquered lands to. And the lesson here, I think, is that if you believe in the kind of God who makes this kind of deal, then you're going to end up in debt to a very difficult deity. The subtext of this story is a question to the reader, and I can almost hear the narrator leaning out of the page towards me to ask it. What if God isn't like this? What if God isn't a deal-making God who gives victory in exchange for sacrifices? I think that this pathos-laden story of Jephthah and his daughter, problematic though it is, is asking any who read it to question whether they're going to put their faith in a God who gives violent victory in exchange for violent promises, or whether they're going to reject that God and seek a different God who doesn't behave in that way. The thing is, it is so easy for us to believe in a violent God who takes blood and calls us and gives us permission to do the same. It is the justification for just war from a Christian perspective. This God who takes blood and calls us to do the same is written through human culture from ancient times to the modern. He drives us to wars, oppression, invasion and division. This is the God of nationalism tribalism, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and indeed any ideology which demonizes the other for their inherent characteristics. And the violent God calls to us down the centuries, asking us to sacrifice our own children on ideological altars of our own construction. I remember a few years ago, Liz and I visited a National Trust property, which had previously been uh, a boys' school. And there in the grounds was uh, a, a war memorial sculpture. And it's by quite a famous artist. I think it, I think it might be an Epstein bronze, but I'm going to need to check it, because I haven't. Um, but it's of a, a young boy, uh, cast in bronze, kind of stood there with his hand up, you know, kind of as if he's answering a question in class and uh, the question underneath is you know who will go for me who shall I send and it's this clear idea that you know the children from that school who went out to fight in the wars of the 20th century were doing so 
answering the call of God. Did you pick up any of that in some of the narrative around Remembrance Sunday a couple of weeks ago? I'm pretty sure you wouldn't have done here in this church, but it's out there, isn't it? God calls us to violent responses, and children die on the ideological altars of our own construction. And I think the story of Jephthah is a story designed to show where such ideologies take us, to expose the horrors of such deals with God for the evil that they truly are. Jephthah has one further episode in his saga before he dies, and it's equally shameful. Unlike the Jewish man that we met in Bethlehem, whose daughter's death had prompted him to seek peace and reconciliation, Jephthah, after his daughter's death at his own hand, and the men of Gilead set off, of course, once again to war. This time not against the Ammonites, this time it's against the tribe of Ephraim, because apparently the Ephraimites have insulted them or something. They end up capturing their latest enemies and use a verbal test of a person's accent to decide who lives and who dies. If someone they have captured says the word shibboleth correctly, they live. If they say it incorrectly, they die. And 42,000 Ephraimites die because they speak with the wrong accent. And so, to come back to the present day and the battles in the land of Palestine. We had a private audience with Archbishop Elias Shakur, the former head of the Greek Melkite Church. He's a Palestinian and he welcomed us to his church. He told us his story about how his boyhood village was occupied and how this led him to seek a path of nonviolent resistance to the evils of occupation. He was very clear this is not about a binary situation of Israel versus Palestine where one side are good and one side are bad. Rather, he said to us that his message can be summed up in two sentences. God is love and God does not kill. His encouragement was for us to have the courage to then speak those truths wherever they need to be heard. And it seems to me that this is the alternative God that lurks behind the narrative of Jephthah's daughter. What if God doesn't kill? What if God doesn't give victory through violence? What if God doesn't demand a blood sacrifice in exchange for righteousness? What if God doesn't kill his own son on the cross, but rather enters into the depth of human pain and suffering on the cross in order to redeem us? Plenty of Christians still worship a God who kills. But I can hear the text of the Old Testament whispering to us. What if that isn't God? What if God is love and God does not kill? What if God calls us to love our neighbours as much as we love ourselves? What if this is the message to proclaim in the war zone, as so many of the people we were meeting were doing? What if this is the real truth of who God is? What if God doesn't want us to make our country great again? What if God doesn't want us to put our country first at all costs? What if God isn't on our side? What if vows 
to thee, my country, simply imprison us in ideologies of our own making? What if God is always irrevocably on the side of the oppressed, the weak, the marginalized, the hurt, the grieving, the homeless, and the dispossessed? What if all our attempts to violently construct our empires are simply deals with Molech that will circle back on us and kill our children too? What if the only way to stop children dying is to do things differently, to follow the God whispered of in the subtext of the Old Testament, but made known in Jesus Christ? The God who calls us to peaceful living and nonviolent resistance. What if this is the truth? That we might become people of gospel nonviolence, who allow God to disarm our hearts of the violence within us. That we might be nonviolent to ourselves and to every person we meet for the rest of our lives. We pray, God of peace, hear our prayer. that we might practice nonviolence as Jesus did, come to understand his creative nonviolence and obey his commandments of nonviolence. Put down your sword, be as compassionate as God and love your enemies. We pray, God of peace, hear our prayer that we might come to know and worship God as a God of peace and nonviolence, who makes the sun rise on the good and the bad and causes the rain to fall on the just and the, unju and the unjust, that we might become peacemakers who help end war and create a culture of nonviolence and so fulfill our vocations to be the beloved sons and daughters of the God of peace, we pray. God of peace, hear our prayer. For the church, that it might be a global community of gospel nonviolence, that it might never blast violence or justify war again that it might support and bless nonviolent campaigns for justice and peace, and that it might always teach, practice, and model the nonviolence of Jesus. We pray, God of peace, hear our prayer. For an end to war, poverty, starvation, oppression, and violence of every kind, we pray, God of peace, hear our prayer. For the coming of a new generation of peacemakers, for new teachers, prophets, apostles, champions, and saints of gospel nonviolence, who will help the world turn from violence to nonviolence, who will lead us to reject war, reconcile with one another, and create a new culture of peace and nonviolence, 
we pray. God of peace, hear our prayer. God of peace, thank you for hearing our prayers. All the prayers in our hearts and all the prayers of the whole human race. And we offer them in the name of the nonviolent Jesus. Amen. <laughs>